This podcast is brought to you by Huawei Technologies. From devices to telecom infrastructure to cloud computing and convergence solutions, Huawei is rethinking every link in the IT chain to deliver a better future faster. Huawei is proud to offer its Fusion Solar PV solution, a unique approach to integrating, optimizing, and digitizing solar power plants. Installers and developers are buzzing about the product. Learn why at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. For the week of October 15th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In this episode, are U.S. climate goals doomed without nuclear? We'll talk with an analyst who says the government screwed up when crafting its carbon emissions target. Then we'll recap the high drama for demand response at the Supreme Court this week. And we will break down candidate positions on energy and climate in the aftermath of Tuesday's Democratic presidential debate. I'm Stephen Lacey in Washington, D.C., joined by Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions, also in D.C., and Jigger Shah of Generate Capital in New York. Catherine, I heard you stood for like four hours outside the Supreme Court yesterday. Yes, four and a half hours. I was tweeting pictures of the lovely crowds uh, with whom I was hanging, but we never got in. Only 50 people got in. I once stood in a line for a few hours to get into a Phil Lesh and Bob Dylan show. Was the crowd as colorful as that? This is a FERC case, Stephen. Why didn't they have space for the Catherine Hamilton of the Energy Gang? <laughs> Did you not have a press pass? I was not there at 6 a.m., that's why. <laughs> Jigger, what's the longest thing you've ever waited in line for? Oh, Lord. Um, nothing. <laughs> you don't wait in lines? <laughs> I, I think, I think for me, I guess I don't care enough about anything to wait in line for a long time. Oh man, I waited overnight for season tickets for my college hockey team. That's worth waiting for. Totally. Waiting patiently on the line is this week's guest, Jesse Jenkins. Jesse is a researcher. He's a consultant, a writer with expertise in electricity markets, climate policy, and innovation. Uh, if you follow him, you've probably read his stuff on the Energy Collective or his work when he was with the Breakthrough Institute. He's also getting his PhD right now in engineering systems at MIT, and he joins us from Boston. Jesse, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Flipping the question to you, what's the longest thing you've ever waited for? I'm, I'm guessing maybe it's your doctorate? Uh, yeah, I'm waiting plenty long for that, hoping to be out of here in another uh, year and a half or so. Yeah, it certainly feels long enough. Let's start off with some background. The, the Obama administration recently completed its carbon rule for existing power plants designed to cut emissions 32% below 2005 levels by 2030. We talked about this on August 6th with Politico's Mike Grunewald, and I encourage listeners who want to hear the details of the whole rule and the implications to go back and listen to that episode. But there is um, a big accounting problem with the rule, argue many nuclear advocates and, and analysts who are watching how this rule was crafted. Because it completely ignores the 105 gigawatts of existing nuclear plants that are very important for keeping emissions levels down, the government will credit new plants under construction for their emissions-free electricity, but not the ones already in place. So, so Jesse, why does that matter? And how is the rule structured so that, it, uh, so that nuclear is disadvantaged here? So the, the, the Clean Power Plan actually offers states uh, multiple options to comply. This is supposed to be you know, one of the advantages of the rule and that it, it allows flexibility for states to pick different routes to, to meet the requirement. 
And the big distinction is between a mass-based standard, which applies to total tons of CO2, you know, the mass of emissions, uh, versus a rate-based standard, which is um, an average of the emissions um, uh, that are emitted by all of the existing fossil power plants covered by the rule, um, uh, divided by the amount of uh, electricity that those power plants produce, so the emissions rate per megawatt hour. It gets a little more complicated than that because uh, the EPA wanted to credit states for, um, for building new low-carbon power plants, so uh, new nuclear plants, new wind, solar, or, or even energy efficiency upgrades. And so they also adjust that ratio by applying these emissions reduction credits um, that correspond to the electricity produced by new low-carbon power plants or saved by energy efficiency uh, efforts as well. Just just to be clear for people in case they're not fully on the same page, under the rate-based rule, you can replace a nuclear power plant with a natural gas plant. And because you're thinking about the average emissions output from the existing fossil fuel fleet, even though total emissions go up, the rate goes down. Is that what you're saying? And that's that's the real problem here. That's- that's right. And, and so think about it this way. If, um, you know, we're talking about pounds of CO2 per megawatt hour. So if, uh, if a nuclear plant shuts down an existing natural gas plant that, say, emits um, half a ton per, per megawatt hour that they produce, um, replaces that plant, that means that the total pounds of CO2 are going to go up, but the megawatt hours that are in the bottom of that ratio are going to go up by twice as much. So it's actually going to reduce the emissions rate um, as measured under the clean power plan uh, for the rate-based standard, even though total CO2 goes up. And that really is the problem with the, uh, the rate-based rule. And then the second problem is under both rules, if you replace an existing nuclear reactor with a new natural gas plant, um, that new natural gas plant isn't covered by the clean power plan at all. It's covered by the separate new source performance standard. And as long as it's lower than 1,100 pounds of CO2 per megawatt hour, which virtually all efficient gas plant, new gas plants uh, meet that standard without any trouble, um, then that power plant is free to operate and emit as much CO2 as it wants um, and isn't covered at all by the clean power plan. So that, that's the problem in a nutshell. So basically what this tells us is that if more than just a few existing nuclear power plants retire, then you think the EPA clean power plan will be mostly derailed. Well, I think it's going to be a big step backwards, and we're going to have to fight that much harder to make progress in total CO2 emissions. The, the standard itself won't get us there. Um, additional measures might have to be taken to not only um, comply with the rule, but make up for the shortfall um, created by the retirement of our nuclear fleet. Yeah. So, Jesse, I reached out to my friends at the Nuclear Energy Institute, and they sent a bunch of really interesting information, including some statements and quotes from a host of folks uh, like Obama and Gina McCarthy and others about how important nuclear energy is in the context of a clean power plan. And they also sent a chart on how mass-based um, scenario will help nuclear and, and how nuclear will be best poised um, to participate in a mass-based scenario. My sense is that that's how most states are looking at this and and that that could, is probably how the, the EPA will in the federal implementation plan. But I don't know. What's your sense of that? Yeah, I think if, if, the, uh, if states adopt a mass-based standard, then they're implicitly valuing the contribution of existing nuclear plants because the, the emissions limit, the mass-based standard that's set, um, is, is based on the assumption that we keep operating those uh, existing plants. So when EPA set the targets for each state, the assumption was 
that our existing nuclear uh, fleet continues to operate. Now, if an existing reactor is replaced by an existing fossil fueled power plant that increases its utilization rate and cranks out more megawatt hours to replace the nuclear plant, then that would obviously put a state under the mass-based rule further from compliance with the rule because emissions would go up and they'd be, um, you know, have a harder time meeting that total tons of CO2 target. So the part that confuses me the most is that, it. I mean, we're talking about a theoretical scenario, which I'm just trying to figure out what the probability is that it's going to happen, right? I mean, the vast majority of states in the continental United States have a nuclear power plant in them. I think it's only about 10 states that don't have a nuclear power plant in them. And so for all of the states that have a nuclear power plant, you just expect them to go to a mass-based format. And you would expect that the utility companies would actually fight tooth and nail with the nuclear industry to make sure they go to a mass-based format, right? Well, it depends. It, it, it depends on if they think that they are going to retire their, if they want to retire their fleet or not. I mean, basically, you know, the, the EPA tried to make the mass-based rule and the rate-based rule basically equivalent, and, and their defense of being able to offer multiple options for compliance was this argument that they were effectively equivalent. I think this issue with existing low-carbon power plant retirements shows that they're not actually equivalent rules, that uh, compliance will be harder under one rule than the other, depending on what you're going to do with your existing fleet. Yeah, but why would someone want to retire their nuclear power plant? I mean, I get the one in Vermont, but the rest of the nuclear power plants in the country are generally not under siege. And so, you know, I mean, are they too expensive to operate? Like, why would they, why would people want to shut them down? Well, so under current market conditions, they have been too expensive in in a lot of places because natural gas is so cheap that wholesale power prices have become so cheap that really no zero carbon power sources are are cost competitive. Um, And some of those plants are are losing money on an annual basis with current prevailing uh, rates. So that's the concern um, in Illinois and throughout the Midwest and, and here in Massachusetts with the Pilgrim plant, which just announced its plans to close by 2019. Um, you know, that, those fortunes could be reversed if one of a couple things happens, either natural gas prices rise again significantly, um, and that lifts up uh, wholesale power prices, or if the states adopt a sufficiently stringent mass-based standard, which, um, you know, provides some kind of value um, associated with the, you know, the zero carbon nature of those nuclear plants. Um, but, you know, a lot of these power plants are making decisions, the owners are making decisions right now. Um, and they're not sure what gas prices are going to look like. Most of them don't, don't think gas prices are going to go up quite, quite significantly. Um, and they're not sure what their states are going to decide uh, about, um, about the EPA clean power plan. And, and, and I guess I'm confused, but I'm confused by that, Jesse. I mean, these power plants have already been fully paid off. So you're saying the variable costs of nuclear are higher than the variable costs of gas? Yeah, so, so it's not the variable cost, it's the annual fixed operation and maintenance costs, the things that you need to do every year to keep a, a nuclear power plant operating, the staffing costs, the refueling schedule, the upgrades required to stay you know, compliant with the um, NRC requirements for, for safety, et cetera. So these plants have significant ongoing carrying costs on an annual basis, um, even though they're not paying off their capital costs for construction. And, and according to Exelon, those, those tend to be in the $30 to $40 per megawatt hour um, on average, over the year, they need to make thirty to forty dollars per megawatt hour to cover those annual costs. And unfortunately, uh, you know they're they're off by about you know four to ten dollars per megawatt hour in terms of the average uh, value they're earning in the wholesale markets right now, which are hovering around thirty dollars. So the only 
enforcement mechanism, the only thing that EPA can enforce is greenhouse gas emissions from fossil plants, whether it's coal right. or gas. That's it. EGUs are the only ones that can that can be a, in, this can be an enforcement mechanism. So as as utilities are seeking to comply and the the electric generating units that are fossil, the coal ones either have to shut down, do something completely differently. And the natural gas, even if you build new ones, they still they are still emitting. So there is still an enforcement mechanism for natural gas emissions. Um, how does it position nuclear then in you know with utilities that are mostly fossil? Or does it? Is that does it give it an, an, is there an opportunity? Well, I really think it depends on what the price of natural gas is, because if you are a utility that has a, has built a significant natural gas power fleet already, um, and it's not being utilized to its fullest extent, the cheapest way to comply with the EPA Clean Power Plan is likely just to increase the utilization rate of those existing natural gas plants. And if you do that, as long as those gas plants are lower than the, um, they have an emissions rate that's less than uh, the state's emissions rate, then that's going to be fully compliant with either the mass-based rule or the, well, sorry, it will be fully compliant with the, with the rate-based rule. Um, so that if that's the cheapest way to go, then states, you know, could be heavily lobbied by their utilities or could choose out of their own interest um, in terms of keeping compliance costs low uh, to go for the rate-based standard and simply sweat their natural gas fleet uh, more um, and keep power prices lower than if they were to comply uh, in a way that actually reduce CO2 emissions. So I think that's the concern. So if you wanted to actually support nuclear, I mean, what's the, you know, what what are the opportunities to do that? You're you're either saying to to basically just pay nuclear power plants a subsidy for to run for a certain period of time or, you know, what what are the options? Well, so I think there's a there's a couple different routes. One is you adopt a stringent, you know, a real mass-based emission standard for the state. Um, which would create a value for low carbon uh, power sources, and then they could compete amongst one another. And in that context, existing nuclear power plants are almost surely one of the cheapest uh, options to, to provide zero carbon uh, energy. Or you can adopt some kind of clean energy standard, uh, similar to the renewable portfolio standards that are currently supporting renewable energy growth in about 27 states in the country. Illinois is considering that. Um, so it would basically create, a, I think, 70% um, low carbon uh, power requirement for its electricity uh, mix. And that would include room for renewables to grow as well as credit for existing, uh, existing nuclear plants in the state. So states could adopt something like that. Um, or we could decide that we want to subsidize them directly the way that we subsidize um, uh, wind and solar and, and other low carbon power sources. I mean, I, if you look at the Pilgrim plant, uh, which is the, the plant here in Massachusetts about to close, it provides uh, about 5% of New England's electricity and 84% of Massachusetts's carbon-free power. And they're closing the plant because they're losing between $40 million and $100 million a year keeping it operating. But that would only cost, that only translates to about $7 to $19 per megawatt hour of a shortfall. And that is contingent on natural gas prices, you know, staying where they are. If natural gas prices go back up again, that shortfall per megawatt hour declines. And in contrast, we spend $23 per megawatt hour for every megawatt hour of wind or geothermal energy supported by the production tax credit. Um, and we spend quite a lot more than that in Massachusetts for, um, for solar uh, renewable energy credits under the state's um, uh, RPS policy here. So these are pretty, you know, pretty uh, relatively affordable um, 
sources of zero carbon emissions in comparison to the other sources that we spend a lot of money on as a country today. Yeah, but I think the part that you keep missing on this, Jesse, is that the person who owns the Pilgrim plant is the person who doesn't care about the Pilgrim plant, right? That's the issue. This is, you're right that this is easy to solve, but if the person who owns that plant has no isn't interest in really protecting it or saving it, then like, why is it that the rest of us should actually step up and save it for them? What do you mean they have no interest? They're losing 40 to $100 million a year, so they have no financial interest in keeping it open. But if you change the financial equation, right, um, but like, but literally, doing it. Yeah, but you're talking about a relatively underfunded group of renewable energy activists that continue to pass laws in Massachusetts. You could imagine that the Nuclear Energy Institute, along with EEI and as along with all the utility companies, could pass this relatively easily. In fact, they probably could have just said, for the net metering extension of solar in Massachusetts, we want a permanent sort of, you know, subsidy for our nuclear plant to keep it open in exchange for allowing the net metering rule to happen. But they didn't do that because they obviously don't care about keeping it open. It seems like your reports are like, hey, you know, these guys are screwing up. And in this case, it's probably NRDC that you're beating up because, you know, they're the ones who are really pushing the 111D rule. But like, I just don't understand why they're beating up anybody. Well, they are beating up somebody. But you're beating I, up I'm somebody. That, That's the point. Otherwise, I, I'm saying I'm saying I'm somebody who believes that climate change is an extremely urgent challenge that we do not have time to waste. That we need to preserve all of the progress we've made while we make as much progress as we can. I'm speaking as a citizen. I don't have an industrial interest. I'm not speaking as a solar industry person or a renewable energy person or a re- nuclear industry person. And I, I'm not really sure what you're you're asking. What I'm saying is that. People who care about climate change should care that we preserve our existing nuclear fleet. And as a country, uh, we should be willing to value the contributions that existing nuclear makes to keeping emissions low, uh, just as we value the way uh, renewables help keep emissions low through a variety of public policy measures. I'm pressing on this because, as Catherine knows all too well, the solutions that Jesse's provided are actually remarkably easy to pass. Like it's actually, when you think about how much stuff we've done, Illinois is a cluster, mostly because Exelon doesn't actually want a lot of the renewable energy sources to play fairly, which is why that bill has been opposed by a lot of folks. But they actually know the guys at the Environmental Law Policy Center really well. And if they actually cut a deal with them, they'd pass the law in a week. But Exelon's like, well, we want our cake and eat it too. We want to keep our nuclear plants open and we want to poke these other guys in the eye, right? And I, th- I just think that like this is actually not that hard to solve. But instead of actually identifying who exactly are the villains that are hurting nuclear, it's not the environmental groups. It's the nuclear industry themselves who basically are either completely inept at the way in which they actually lobby for things or they're deliberately playing games. Well, and if you look at the subsidies reports, like EIA did a subsidy report, and the renewables folks get far less than coal, gas, oil, and nukes, um, and they've outlined every, you know, they've detailed every place that where there are subsidies, direct financial interventions and subsidies on in FY 2013, and um, so we can we can have a discussion about subsidies, but I'm wondering how we get this industry. Um, you know, if if it's something that we consider as a country important, how do we get it, um, get people to build and sustain it? And and Jesse, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because I didn't know if this kind of figured into how you see the industry moving, is how important are the Paris negotiations? Is Paris going to make a difference with the global community coming around? 
Um, I don't know how much difference Paris will make. I mean, the basically all of the commitments that almost every country is going to bring to Paris have already been made and are already consistent with national policy uh, and national politics in each of those countries. Um, there may be some ratcheting up that happens there, you know, some contingent commitments where countries say, well, if you go a little further, we'll go a little further as well. And I, I hope that that's the case. I hope that's the outcome from, from Paris. We really need that kind of increased ambition. Um, but I see, you know, in some ways Paris following national policy. And so for those countries that already have national commitments to nuclear, um, that will figure into their, um, their plans that they bring to, uh, to Paris. And, you know, China is heavily committed to nuclear at this point. Uh, India has a strong nuclear program. So that's going to feature in on the global stage as well. Um, and I think the question is uh, what the United States' view is going to be about, uh, about nuclear's role here in, in this country. And that will be determined mostly, by, I think, by state and, and national you know, policy decisions here and, and not at Paris in, in December. Jesse, I want to give you the final opportunity to riff on Jigger's point because I think he does bring up an interesting one. What is getting, you know, we, we started this conversation by saying that, that the EPA regulations were going to be a problem for nuclear. But as we've established, it's market rules, it's the economics of uh, competitive technologies, uh, it's uh, a regulatory and licensing issue. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that are standing in nuclear's way beyond these EPA regulations. Is is the nuclear industry itself standing in its own way? What do you think um, about Jigger's thoughts related to passing some of these policies that, that you're talking about and structuring market rules that are more favorable to nuclear? So I do think that the nuclear industry needs to come to the table the way Jigger was mentioning, and it does need to cut deals and it needs to build alliances and I think what I'm saying is that those people who care about urgently addressing climate change, uh, I think all of us included here on this call, um, should do what we can to ensure that that coalition comes together. Um, and, you know, if we can't save the nuclear industry from itself, then that'll be the end. And we'll have to figure out how to work even harder to replace the 20 percent of our uh, country's electricity that comes from uh, zero carbon uh, nuclear uh, today. You know, that may be the outcome. I, I, uh, I don't have a crystal ball and I, I certainly can't single handedly save the nuclear industry from itself. Um, all I'm saying is that we have to, as climate advocates, recognize the contribution that nuclear could make um, and work to build a broader coalition. And I think the industry, the nuclear industry itself needs to uh, think carefully about how it participates in that coalition as well. And I agree, stop driving wedges between uh, the nuclear industry and the renewables industry, as Exelon has been doing in, in Illinois. Jesse Jenkins is a researcher, a consultant, and a writer. You can check out his stuff at the Energy Collective. Um, he's also getting his PhD at MIT. A uh, very smart guy. Also, the report that he helped work on is called When Nuclear Ends, How Nuclear Retirements Might Undermine Clean Power Plan Progress. Highly recommended reading. We will link to it on the podcast page and also link to Jesse's analysis from the Energy Collective on the podcast page. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time and glad to ha finally have you on the show. Thanks. Really uh, happy to be here and, uh, and really appreciate the show. So I um, look forward to listening to, uh, to many more great podcasts. Thank you. We've got a new sponsor this week. We are pleased to introduce Huawei, a leading global information and communications technology provider. Huawei operates in 170 countries, serving more than one-third of the world's population. Huawei's new product, Fusion Solar PV, combines cutting-edge IT technologies and power electronics for digitizing solar power plants. 
The Fusion Solar PV solution is designed to take the entire PV plant as an entity and make improvements throughout the whole process, from construction to maintenance. It can optimize initial investment, reduce maintenance costs, increase power generation, and boost the rate of return. Learn more about Huawei's Fusion Solar PV solution at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. Huawei, building a connected world of endless possibilities. Demand response got its day in the Supreme Court on Wednesday. It's not Brown versus the Board of Education or Roe versus Wade, but Federal Energy Regulatory Commission versus the Electric Power Supply Association is a pretty big deal for the future of energy markets, even though it doesn't really roll off the tongue. At issue is whether FERC overstepped its bounds in 2011 by establishing Order 745, a rule that allowed demand response providers to bid into energy markets at the wholesale rate. FERC has the ability to regulate wholesale markets, but power providers against the order say FERC issued a rule that has a direct impact on retail energy prices and allows retail customers to participate in the wholesale market. So they argue that FERC is violating states' rights by encroaching on retail markets. In May, a district court ruled that FERC was overstepping its authority. The case moved its way to the Supreme Court, and arguments were made yesterday. Catherine tried to get in, sat for a few hours, as we said, outside the Supreme Court. But she has been following this very closely. Catherine, what's at stake here? Oh, and I wasn't sitting. I was standing, by the way, for the four and a half hours. And just so that you'll know, so all these people, hundreds of people were lined up in suits and 50 people got in. A poor tourist came up with where I was standing with another fellow and said, um, so what's this about? And I'm sure he thought it was going to be like about gun rights or the right to choice or whatever. And we started describing Order 745 and demand response to him. And he was like, oh, my gosh, I wish I'd never asked. Turns out Um, that's how the Supreme Court operates most of the time. Yeah, well, it is really important because it's going to determine if consumers can really benefit from participating in the wholesale market. And that is very important for the reliability of the grid, for consumer savings, for really open access to markets. And it could potentially impact a lot of other markets, not just the energy market for demand response, for, but the capacity markets and everything else that participates in it. And while I didn't get in, I did read the entire transcript and I did get a lot of color from the folks who were in. So I can, I can certainly kind of describe a little bit about what happened. Please do. I, I'd like to also get a blow by blow and understand where the justices sit on this issue too. Well, why, why is Alito uh, recusing himself? Oh, I think because, well, they don't really know. I mean, they they don't have to say, but it sounded like he had a financial stake in Johnson Controls, which does demand response, right? Yes, yes. It's so interesting because I assumed that Alito had some stake in like a generator. (laughs) And, but no, he would actually be coming down on the side of demand response if he were able to, if he thought he was able to participate because Johnson Controls is, you know, one of those companies that's part, you know, they're part of the amicus. So it's pretty interesting that he would have been on the other side. So the way it kind of sounded just from list, just from reading the, what, how they were talking and, um, and you know, trying to figure out from what people were saying how the justices were behaving. There are two main issues. One is jurisdiction. You know, can FERC actually set rates in the wholesale market that potentially impact retail rates? And then um, can is the level of compensation, which is full locational marginal pricing, is that the correct way 
to then compensate those services. So the questions from Scalia and Chief Justice Roberts on jurisdiction really lead me to believe that those justices are really not on the side of FERC having any jurisdiction at all and really were not on the side of of, um, consumers being able to participate in the wholesale market in that way. So they, I think they would be, um, no votes on order 745, just my, just from reading what I, you know, what I, the entire transcript, um, Justice Kennedy is a little bit of the wild card. He did not talk about jurisdiction. He said, all right, let's assume they have jurisdiction, but let's talk about compensation. So I think he's one of those who's really, um, could be a swing on the compensation piece. Um, two justices, three justices were pretty friendly. One in particular was Breyer, who was really, really good on explaining what demand response was in a way that was really understandable. And he just kind of said, end of case, this, this is a no brainer. This, you know, there's no case history on this because there doesn't need to be case history on this. So he was very, very clearly for Order 745, remaining as it is. Sotomayor also was friendly, and Kagan seemed to be leaning that way too, which is interesting. We Nobody thought there would be that this would ha- have anything to do with party lines at all. They just weren't sure how people were going to interpret this. So the two that did not say anything were uh, Justice Thomas, whom we would assume would vote with Scalia and Roberts. He did not say a word. And then the other is Notorious RBG, um, who did not say a word also, but we would assume she would side with the arguments of Sotomayor and Breyer. So that puts you at kind of three and three, yes and no, and then Kennedy as the wild card. So um, so now that's four and three, and then Kennedy we don't know. So say Kennedy um, went fully no with Scalia, Roberts, and Thomas, that would put you at four, four. And if you have a tie in the Supreme Court, we may know as early as Monday if they have a tie. And in that case, it reverts to the circuit court's decision, which is that that order is then no longer in place. And FERC has to then figure out what they're going to do and how to dismantle it and how to dismantle all of those markets. Um, and that does it, not mean that states cannot establish their own demand response programs. States can still go ahead and establish their demand response program. It just limits what FERC is able to do. Yeah, but so one way, a lot of states are monetizing their demand response programs by bidding into the wholesale markets. So BG&E bids their demand response program into PJM, and that's how they can give their pass the, the payments onto their consumers. So it, it really does limit what the states in organized markets are able to do. Um, I understand why they're trying to draw this line, but the line seems fuzzy to me regardless. I mean, m- many decisions that you make and how to operate wholesale markets bleed into retail markets. So what is the argument against FERC's Order 745? I mean, I, I, I understand the premise, but in reality, it seems to me that the, that the line is very fuzzy. Yes. Well, I don't know. I, if you look at who is supporting Order 745, so the Solicitor General that, who represents the federal government, and of course that includes FERC, Department of Energy, EPA, Department of Defense, and GSA. Remember, those are big consumers, and they use demand response to reduce taxpayer you know, payment of energy bills for federal facilities. Um, so the Solicitor General represents all of that. There are nine state consumer advocates that are in support of Order 745. So that tells you right there, their consumers think this is a good idea. PJM supports it. There are three state public utility commissions that are that support it. The environmental advocates, certainly, because Order 745 provides some reduction in emissions. Economists, legal and grid efforts, demand response providers, and consumers, of course, because they're the ones that participate 
participate. And interestingly, NRG, who broke with the generators, also supports Order 745, at least on the jurisdictional side. The detractors. Now, if you're saying, like, why would you not? The generators. So it's all the generators. And, and Jigger was just talking about this. The, all of the load-serving entities and generators, those guys have no they have no desire to not have people buy what they're selling. So demand response for them is just, is not a good economic situation. Totally. And I get the, I get the financial incentive and I understand the need to establish a clear bound, a clear boundary in what FERC has jurisdiction over, but actions in the wholesale markets inherently impact retail uh, markets to begin with. So like, that's what they're arguing that, Order 745 bleeds down into the retail market, and because of that, it's, it, it oversteps FERC's jurisdiction. Yeah, and you're right. Everything does that. So, But yeah, it keeps prices lower, actually. Um, and so that's what's called federal-state cooperative jurisdiction. So if you read the um, transcript, um, Solicitor General Don, uh, Don Verilli, who they call General Vanilli, Verilli, he lays that out really well in his um, rebuttal and closing remarks. It's, it's a pretty good, clear case of why this is something that happens all the time because wholesale and retail markets are um, – there is a lot going back and forth, and this is just one piece of it. But it's something that FERC has been able to figure out with the states, and you know it, it seems to work well, and it provides incentives to to be able to manage the grid. And one thing that doesn't come up in these conversations is like, what does demand response do to the actual grid operation? And it's incredibly important to the actual management of the way the grid functions, regardless of how much money is paid to anybody. Um, but that's not one of the arguments. So, you know, the, the outcome could either be that it goes, it, it's tied and it goes back to the circuit court decision. It could be that if they win, um, it goes, it just, FERC Order 745 is, is kept as it is. Or if Ken, it could be remanded, depending on what Kennedy does, back to FERC to rethink compensation. So that's the one thing that's a little bit um, – and that would still be a win for demand response because it would say, all right, you still have the ability to do it. It's just, you know, how are you paid for it? So I think um, unless it's a it's a tie or they, or they clearly um, uphold the circuit court decision, um, then there's potential for a win. What do you think will but, happen? I don't know. I'm not a betting person, but I thought that the Solicitor General and Carter Phillips, who was the um, attorney for Internoc, did a great job. They both they did, both did really well. I I mean I, I read all the analysis. I obviously didn't read the transcripts, but um, it seemed like the likely outcome was that they would change the formula, right? Not actually just blanketly say FERC didn't have jurisdiction. Yeah, that's that would be a rational outcome. Yes. I've got another question that may show my ignorance on this, um, but it's just something that's con confusing me. So the argument against 745, as I said, allows – the argument against it is that it allows commercial customers who should be buying electricity in retail markets to go into the wholesale market. But, like, aren't we already seeing this kind of interaction? Big companies are now buying wholesale power from large solar and wind facilities. Like, we saw the Apple deal with – first solar in February. What's the difference here if demand response provides the same kind of access to wholesale markets? Yeah, I mean, so that's the slippery slope, um, is that this this does manifest itself in, a, in other types of um, 
market products that are that are wholesale. And I think that that's what the danger is of this thing of the circuit court decision holding is this the this could not just impact demand response market, but but then and this is why First Energy has filed a complaint at FERC to basically dismantle the capacity markets as well. Because really, this order, if you look at just the order, and it's just about demand response compensation at full LMP in the energy markets, that's only 5% of the, of the market for demand response. And yet a decision like this can impact not just demand response um, in the energy markets, but also the capacity markets and then everything else in the capacity market. Well, as Catherine said, if it's a 4-4 split, we could know as soon as Monday. So we'll update you as we get more news on this. Thanks for, for the update there. And sorry, you had to wait in line so long. It sounds like you got a cold too. Did that exacerbate your cold? <laughs> it was actually a beautiful day. So I was super lucky that way. Let's talk about the Democratic presidential debate, which took place on Tuesday. Uh, all the candidates stood side by side for the first time to debate foreign policy, gun control, financial reform, police brutality, and climate change. Uh, debate may be the wrong word for climate, as all the candidates agreed that it was a top issue facing the country. The actual debate centered around what to do about it. And even then, it was mostly the candidates trying to one up each other on their green credentials rather than disagreeing on anything. Climate change was mentioned 22 times in the Democratic debate, mostly unprompted. It was mentioned only 11 times in the most recent Republican debate, and only yet then used to raise doubt about the science and the solutions. The partisan divide here should not come as a shock to anyone this campaign season who's followed this issue. But was there anything new and interesting from Democrats in this week's debate? Catherine, did you hear anything that surprised you that you might not have heard before from the candidates? Or did they elaborate on anything? Well, it was great that Senator Sanders, when 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 everybody was asked, what's the biggest challenge to our national security, he said climate change. I mean, he kind of reframed it as uh, an impact, impacting our national security. And I thought that was really good and interesting. Now, that's not surprising coming from him, but I thought it raised it to a different level. Um, you know, everybody, I guess, you know, O'Malley has always been pretty green, although he said Las Vegas was was a sustainable city, <laughs> the, which like the top sustainable city in the like, country. Yeah, the, the right. It's like the ca- national capital of excess. But well, the, um, the, the debate was in Las Vegas. So yes, I know he was. Def- there was a, definitely a pandering thing going on. Um, you know, Sanders was was consistently strong. Webb uh, doubled down on nuclear, so they've got their champion right there. Um, Chafee, I don't think he said much of anything about it. Um, and then Clinton described some kind of like weird Benny Hill kind of chase scene thing through the halls of COP 15 in Copenhagen with Obama, where they cornered the Chinese and hashed out their first international agreement on climate. So I don't know, it was interesting that it was that discussed. Clinton used climate to prove her foreign policy credentials rather than really to talk about energy and the need to address climate change. I thought that was an interesting way of of framing things. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly think that Clinton was far more polished at this debate than the rest of the debaters. Um, Martin O'Malley has made a really bold prediction, though. I mean, he's really talking about being 100% fossil fuel free by 2050, which includes 100% clean electricity by 2050, which is pretty damn bold. Um, He just wasn't very articulate or inspirational in the way he described it. Yeah, and he did talk about sort of putting a man on the moon, the whole moonshot thing about trying to, you know, move to 100% clean. So that was, that was great. That's visionary. Um, you know, we've been trying to get somebody to say that who's running for president for a while. Otherwise, he wasn't very impressive. 
No, I mean, this was definitely his warm-up practice. Hopefully he's better at the next debate. But I think to be uber-political about this, um, it's not clear to me that Clinton or Bernie Sanders like are actually going to get us to where we want to go. I mean, I think that the interesting thing is, even though O'Malley doesn't really have a chance in the Democratic presidential race, um, the fact that he brings it up so boldly, I think, helps us. I mean, for as long as he stays in the race, he's going to push Clinton and Bernie Sanders to get more specific about what their plans are. Yeah, I was going to ask you a couple of questions, you guys. One is, how will it impact the primaries, the the climate debate? Because I don't think they're that far apart from each other on it, except for, I mean, the ones that are, that have a chance are probably not that far apart. But then how does it affect the general election? Is this is this an election issue? I think so. Because look, I think elections are one on people actually describing a hopeful future. It's not, you know, one by people scaring the bejesus out of people about Iran or China or Russia or whatever. And when you think about what we're hopeful for over the next eight years, it's really, you know, um, decarbonizing our, our, you know, like grid and getting rid of coal, moving to electric vehicles and all the jobs that we're creating. I mean, we're creating more blue collar jobs in our industry writ large than home builders or any of the other sectors are. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's an important issue for Democrats and a huge swath of the Democratic Party thinks that climate change and clean energy is a top priority. But interestingly, when polled, a lot of Republicans think that uh, clean energy and to a lesser extent, climate change is an important priority as well. And so Republican candidates, at least in the general election, probably won't suffer if they talk about these issues. And in fact, it could bring them a small number of moderate voters in the middle, but it certainly won't damage them. And so I'm more interested in how these candidates position themselves when the primaries are finally up. And we, we have a candidate who has to talk to the broader electorate. And in my opinion, I think we're at a point where the Republican candidate might have to soften on these issues. Right. But to be clear, I mean, what I'm saying is that people won't talk about climate change. They're going to talk about clean energy, right? Because climate change is a negative message by definition. Clean energy is a positive message and doesn't necessarily have to relate to climate change, right? I mean, a Republican candidate could be pro-creating jobs in the rural areas that he represents without um, without actually being pro-climate change. Yeah, I don't know if you guys read David Roberts' analysis of how CNN handled the climate question, but it was really good. So CNN, of course, turned to Don Lemon to ask a question about Black Lives Matter. They turned to Dana Bash to ask a question about equal pay. They turned to uh, the Latino correspondent to ask about immigration. They bungled those questions and got criticized for it. And of course, when asking about climate change, CNN turned to a young liberal arts white student. He just had a really good piece on how awkwardly CNN handled the question, and I thought it was spot on. Listeners, let's tell you something you do not know to finish off the show. Jigger, you're up first this week. So for those of you who don't know, I grew up in Illinois, um, outside of way outside of Chicago. And so I am extraordinarily pleased that my Cubs are, you know, they've just vanquished the St. Louis Cardinals and are going to be facing, I think, the Mets, right? Um, and on their way to winning the World Series this year for the first time since, like, 1908. Yeah, Jigger, I am so, like, for the Cubs in every possible way, except that I'm, mar- <laughs> except that I'm married to a Mets fan. 
<laughs> well, tell Hamilton that we're going to go for it. Well, the vast majority of the country is rooting for the Cubs. Yay, as am Cubs. <laughs> Catherine, what do you got? Yeah, so I got to go on Tuesday up to New York City to Acre, which is the Accelerator for a Clean and Resilient Economy. And I know Jigger and I are both advisors to that um, love, wonderful I incubator. I love those guys. Yes. And Pat Sopinski, um, she and I um, worked at Good Energies together under Richard Kaufman. We were two of three women <laughs> and we've stayed in touch ever since. So she's wonderful. And I got to meet a few great companies. I didn't get to meet them all, but I got to meet Bandwagon, Block Power, Internal, Project Economics, Radiator Labs, Sistine Solar, which is super cool, and Voltaic. Um, and then one of the companies, Agrilist, won this big TechCrunch Disrupt 2015 award. And it's an amazing program. I don't know anything about greenhouses, but this group has put together this whole quantitative data analysis ability for greenhouse operators to be able to run their operations more efficiently using all these data streams to um, help manage water, soil, lighting, and crops. And I think something like that's going to be really important um, in the future as we look at our food supplies. Yeah, I completely agree with you. That's a great program. And, and the other podcast on Green Tech Media, they actually talked to Powerhouse, which is another great um, incubator out in uh, San Francisco. Absolutely. You can check that out from earlier this week. So I've got another moment of enlightenment that I realize is probably old news for many people. Just like when I first discovered Uber like a couple years ago and my fascination with audiobooks recently. But uh, my recent one came when I was driving. I don't drive much at all because I don't own a car. DC is really flat, so I can pretty much ride my bike everywhere with ease. Uh, but last Thursday, I was driving down to a wedding in North Carolina. It was a really bad night for traffic because it was a holiday weekend. It took like an hour just to get to the city limits. It was crazy. And then we sat and stop and go traffic for another couple of hours on the highway. And it's just a soul-crushing experience, as anybody who has to commute every day knows. But the whole time, I couldn't stop thinking about autonomous vehicles because everyone's working on an autonomous vehicle these days. 60 Minutes had a really good piece a couple weeks ago on where the technology is at. And of course, it's being hailed as a way to manage traffic because cars will drive much more consistently and they'll take out the jerky nature of human driving. And of course, we all think everyone else sucks at driving, but we all mostly suck. Um, anyway, after sitting in traffic for hours, I was just staring at all the drivers and, and realizing how erratic they were and how it was causing part of the problem. And it was never more clear to me how important autonomous cars will be as one solution in the urban environment. So that's my realization. For were, you, were you thinking about it while you were doing the dance off that you uh, posted on Facebook? That came, <laughs> that came days later. <laughs> that was awesome for everyone who's Facebook friends with Steven. He's participating in a really awesome dance off. <laughs> I'm now going to get a bunch of Facebook friend requests. Although <laughs> I'm only now blurring the line between my professional life and my personal life. But for those who are lucky enough to walk over that line, you've seen uh, a unique side of Steven Lacey. Yeah. So I've never done that. I don't do Facebook <laughs> for that very reason. Catherine will stick to Twitter. Nice. That's all for the show. Uh, if you want more, subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or the app of your choice. Or head on over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast for all our back episodes. Thank you to our new sponsor, Huawei Technologies, 
For more on how Huawei is connecting the world, visit Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. If you want to connect with us, follow the Energy Gang on Twitter or follow each of us individually. You can also send an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. One final note, you've probably heard our pitch for GTM Squared a few times by now. We think that you're, we're giving you a really good deal for premium content, which includes a new podcast uh, that's designed to give you more market intelligence on the go. So you can learn more and support our editorial team at greentechmedia.com squared. Catherine, have a great end of your week. Take care of that cold, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. You too. Jigger, good luck. Your boy is on the way any day now, huh? <laughs> yes. Well, we're two days after the due date, so we'll see. Well, good luck. We'll be pulling for you. Hope all goes well. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. We'll be right back.